Hello, magical beings, and welcome to the Find Your Awesome podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott, and I am your host. I'm a confidence coach and instigator of joy, and I help spiritual adventurers remember who they are and why they're here so they can up-level with ease. In other words, I help them remember that they are sparkly AF and that the universe wants them to be sparkly AF. And speaking of sparkly AF, my birthday was a couple days ago. And I've always been a huge fan of birthdays. I've never been a big fan of age. I'm just not that into it. But birthdays, love them. And this year I love them even more because I've discovered human design. And that has taught me, that has shown me, that has reminded me that my soul, my itty bitty soul, which may not be itty bitty at all. I don't know. I picture it as this really cute little light being. It shows the specific day and time that I was born so that I would be me, so that I would have all the weirdness and quirks and superpowers that I have, so that I would be the me that I am. And I am so in awe of that process, so in awe of my soul, and so immensely grateful. If you want to learn more about human design and what your soul chose for you, go to kelseyabbott.com slash human design. Now let's talk about this week. This week, I spoke to Chris Marie Campbell and Susan Clark. And I love doing this podcast because I love humans and I love that I get to meet so many amazing humans. These two, well, we just had so much fun together. I love them so much. Yes, I've only met them once, but these two are amazing. And I can't wait to spend more time with them. I think that the fun and connection really comes through in this conversation and I hope you enjoy it. No, I don't. I hope you absolutely positively love it. Chris Marie Campbell, she was an Olympian, an Olympic rower. She's a total badass. She was also a Boeing flight test engineer. And Susan Clark is a former massage therapist and Equus coach, also total cancer warrior. These two are badass, sparkly AF, and absolutely magical. They wrote a book called The Beauty of Conflict, Harnessing Your Team's Competitive Advantage and the Beauty of Conflict couples. They also have a podcast called The Beauty of Conflict for dealing with conflict at work and at home. They're partners in work and life and have been for over two decades, and they've adapted their proven step-by-step process working with Fortune 100 companies such as Johnson & Johnson, Johnson, Microsoft, AT&T, and the San Francisco Giants. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I really hope you enjoy yourself. And please remember... To go forth and be awesome. So we're going to jump right in and talk about the 88 Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, what were you doing there? I mean, just it, let's take us to the whole experience. Remind us where those games were. What, yeah, what was it like? Okay, this is Chris Marie. (laughs) And I was a rower in the 1988 Olympics, which were in Seoul, Korea. And uh, my talk that I give is I call myself the accidental Olympian because I was the smallest and lightest in that event. I wasn't supposed to be a rower. They wanted me to be a coxswain, which is the tiny person who steers the boat. But I said, no, I want to row. And I just kept at it. And I was at the University of Washington because colleges funnel into the Olympic um, camp and 
I uh, wound up making the novice team. We won Pac-10s. It was Pac-10s back then. And then went on and we won two college collegiate championships. And then I made the 87 boat. And that was amazing because that boat, we really clicked and got, you know, we really, we did amazing things. And at that point, this was a world championship. So right before the games and um, the, we hadn't made, beaten the Russians in 15 years because, you know, there was 80 and 84. And so nobody had shown up at the same place. And we were at the start of that race and the gun went off and the Russians just took off like a boat length ahead. And the rest of the pack was trying to catch up. And halfway through the race, our coxswain said, we're moving on the Russians. And we moved through the Russians. Romania won gold, we won silver, but we are also happy to topple the mighty Russians. This big Romanian, we got to the docks, this Romanian woman picked me up and another US rower up, it was really cool. And so going into the games, we were supposed to medal. And I actually, as I was training, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself because I wanted to be the stroke or the leader of the boat, the person that everybody follows. And I was competing against my best friend at the time, my girlfriend, and she wound up, we wound up, the coach all of a sudden decided he was going to cut the Seattle squad in half. We didn't know this was going to happen. And, and he read off the names and he read mine off and he didn't read hers off. And for a millisecond, I went, yay, I won. And then I felt horrible. How could I be happy for my best friend's demise? And I saw her shock and her devastation. And she just didn't want to talk to me at all. And it wasn't too long in my self-hate, I thought, I'm going to start powerlifting, which is a really dumb move. I didn't talk to the coach and it's a form of weightlifting. And, and I, three weeks later, I hurt my back. And I believe I did that. That was a self-sabotage mode. I bumped up into my upper limit. Here was somebody I cared about who wasn't happy. So I was going to sabotage myself. And that was a really, that lasted for three months. And I went through uh, like a suicidal piece because my Olympic dreams were slipping away. And I finally came back, a physical therapist gave me, she saw what a mess I was in, thank goodness. And, and I came back and I made it into the eight and I was hugely excited. And then uh, we made it into the final. And we had been using this experimental boat and we decided that wasn't working. So the, the West Germans who didn't make the final gave us their boat and we got to the end of the race and we finished last. And it was just devastating. And I walked away from that thinking I was a loser. I never wanted to talk about the games. And then I literally met Susan Clark, my wife now, and she asked me about the games and I said, oh, I don't want to talk about it. Because anytime I watched the Olympics, I'd cry. I didn't want to watch talk about it. And she's like, listen, she laughed in my face and she said, you got to do something about that story because if you're a loser, what does that make me and the rest of us out here? And I took her, her words, you know, it was a big enough whack that I actually got help and I started processing it and really started to reclaim my Olympic experience. And, and now can talk about I really feel happy. Uh, you know, I got, you, well, you could probably see you, the rest of those here, Stan. Yeah. Oh, I, nice. Yeah. I got my Olympic tattoo. I just got that a couple of years ago. It's taken I, her a long time. To <laughs> <that Olympic>. it's, <laughs> like, it's like, it's behind me, but it'll always be a part of me. And I really have owned, that was an amazing experience. And I even remembered being on the water thinking, oh my gosh, Chris Marie, you made it. You made it to the Olympic games. But I had kind of, shove that memory aside. So now I have a lot more compassion and joy for my experience. So probably more than you wanted to know. But. <laughs> oh no, not at all. Also, have you read Boys in the Boat? 
Hell yes. yes. We have, there's so many parallels between yes. your story and that story. Joe's. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's at, the, that's at my boathouse. That's where we rode. And now they have a shrine to the boys in the boat. They, we got inducted into the Husky Hall of Fame, which is the University of Washington, just this past October. And they called us girls in the boat because we won the two national collegiate national. You guys did sort of own the fact that it taken them a heck of a long time to recognize it was the girls. 30 the years later, they, they <laughs> let us into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's quite a delay. <laughs> yes, it is. Usually it's about 10 and we're like, what were you thinking, dudes? Yeah, so we are happy, Washington. Pick up your game. <laughs> exactly. More girls in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> right. Right. There we go. Right. Oh. So, Susan, what was it like for you? Did, how soon into meeting Chris Marie did you learn that she was an Olympian? Well, that was actually kind of the basis of how we got introduced. Um, I have a, a friend of mine who's a physician and she and I are both faculty members up at a, a personal growth and development center. And um, she had met Chris, Chris Marie had come in to see her. Well, um, I had a chronic back injury. For 10 and, years. Yeah. And, and she had recommended, um, she, she said, look, you know, this isn't, maybe it's about your back, but there's some other stuff you need to work through. And then somehow she was like, you need to meet Susan. Well, let's just be clear. Susan was given six months to live when she was 24 for cancer and then had three other different types of cancer. So she had dealt with a lot of mind body stuff. Not body. Olympics. I didn't go to the Olympics, <laughs> but I did go to lots of cancer <laughs> clinics. You know, it's <laughs> all different. But I was this like, is a different form of game. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But she, so Susa, our mutual friend, was like, you've got to meet Susan because I had this chronic back injury that wasn't getting better from the Olympics, no matter what I tried. And she's, she's like, you got to meet Susan because of what's gone on for her. And so I was determined. This was a Friday and I met Susan on a Sunday. I drove up to Canada to meet her. So we had, I mean, for me, I was just in awe of here's this person who's been to the Olympic Games. And then I soon discovered just how much what I would interpret as self-hate and, <laughs> you know, like that you had around being so successful. And I was like, you got it this you gotta this has got to be different you know <laughs> because you know there is so much and I've actually because i've worked with a lot of people who are really high achievers i get i, I did joke with her i said the problem is you haven't failed enough this yeah. is what my cancer life taught me if you, yes. you you know if you fall down enough times you actually begin to realize that um you know it's just a whole different life. You can get up. You can get up. You know, there is more than whether you got the goal or not. There's, and, and I think uh, we had some great conversations about that. Like we often joke about what's the similarities between an Olympian and a cancer survivor. And, you know, because there is this, you know, there's, there are some things that are very common, like mm -hmm. to kind of have to do the discipline, to do the work. And, and, the, and the, maybe the other thing, I mean, I, 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 I said to her, I said, you know, you only lost like three races in your entire career like mm -hmm. that. And I get that when you win that much, it's really hard when you lose, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, I, for me, it's like, I, I lost enough and fought enough that I just was like, hey, you're inspiring. And she thought I was inspiring. So I was like, okay, good. That's a good place for us to start. <laughs> it That's is true. a really good basis for a relationship. <laughs> it and it was true. I didn't, I had been such a pleaser and achiever in school and work and sports. And it really is a different thing to learn how to, 
to bounce back and to be okay losing. And I have a much better appreciation for it now because this life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You can't keep winning all the time. So it was a really good lesson for me to learn. Susan, something you just said made me think of, you know, so maybe you quote unquote lost when you got your cancer diagnosis each time, <laughs> but we don't think of all the days that we're not getting cancer diagnosis as like we're winning. Oh yeah. You know, that's a good point. It's a very big, and the other thing, you know, probably one of the things that has been at, at times challenging for us is Chris Murray will say to me, you know, you don't really own that you beat cancer. And I, it's like, it's not that I don't own that I beat, I don't know whether that's the case. I don't look at it like that. I mean, I really do look at it is, I developed a, a way of living my life. Cancer taught me a way to live life more fully. And I actually don't know that I ever thought of it that I got rid of it as much as it became, you know, it became the thing that gave me a driving force to uh, how do I want to live? How do I live more fully? How do I do this? And I really did get that just because I didn't, the cancers didn't kill me. Some of my people I know that did die lived as fully as I did just much sooner, you know, and it took, you, mean, you know, they died sooner. They died. But that the point wasn't whether you died of cancer or didn't die of cancer. It's how you lived. Mm. I mean, I, I mean, there's Brian Piccolo's, this, you know, the, the movie. I don't know. What's that movie? Brian, Brian uh, song. Brian song. But I love the line, you know, it's not how you die. It's how you live. Mm. And that was the thing that cancer taught me. And so it really wasn't ever about getting rid of cancer. It was about learning how to live. And whether that was going to be for the next week or for the next, now it's been 30 some years. So I, but it's the same moment to moment choice. So. Uh, and did yeah. cancer lead you to your work in personal development? Oh, for sure. Yes. I, but, um, you know, I mean, that was like seven or eight years of my life going through various medical uh, treatment experiences. And one of the reasons I got passionate about conflict was because my medical team often did not have answers, but they really didn't like me going to alternatives. And alternative people didn't like my medical team and no one wanted to talk to each other. So I spent a lot of time getting these very smart people to be part of Project Susan. Like you guys, you know, you're the experts. So if you're not gonna talk to each other, we have nowhere to go. So let's, let's work on this. And so when I got done with that, I thought this is one of the things I do best is getting smart people to, talk to each other so and not get into their right position but to actually imagine something beyond that so um that's how chris marie met me was working with uh, in a really con conflictual situation and she hates conflict so she was like but she was actually a high she was a consultant at that time he got well, brought I, into conflict and so i brought her into a, a situation that was like a sexual harassment lawsuit, a team, you know, the guy, the boss had gotten fired, the woman was still on the team, nobody liked the woman. And I'm like, you're coming with me. And I brought her in to deal with this. And one of the things I saw Susan do is say what nobody wanted to say in a very real way. And at that time I was at a consulting firm where you just didn't disagree with the client, you know, you don't do that. And Susan was like, on the lunch break, she called the woman and the leader and she's like, listen, you're holding this team hostage and you're letting her get away with it. And that's got to stop. And I'm like, oh my God, you're going to get us fired. But the woman, the woman actually was open after lunch. Susan said, can we give you feedback? And she said, yes. And she actually responded to the feedback and she let the team talk to her about how they were feeling because everybody was upset with her. And 
And it really shifted the dynamics. And then they could, they kind of process, well, what about this? And what about that? And once they got through their gunk, then we could get them. That's a technical term, gunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> their conflict. We could get them to turn towards now, where do you want to do going forward? How are you going to operate together? What's your strategy? And it was a really, it was a great test drive for, hey, this could be work that we do. And it was, um, it was a really positive experience. So. I always, I jokingly think, you know, that was an example of, I helped them deal with their cancer and then we took them to the Olympics. You know, like, <laughs> if you actually, yeah, you, you have never said that before. I think that's great. Uh, oh, good. Okay, well, that's a great new way approach because that, you know, it is, it is true. That's often what we do. Yeah. Help you deal with this underlying yuck is yuck. And then help you direct that into something that's... Uh, and I would say, and I, tell me where I'm wrong, Susan, but I think also part of your cancer process was actually you being willing to... You had internal conflict about your history, your, yes. your growing up. That's and as you talked about it... You, my my you, life changed. Even though there was more conflict outside of her, yeah. there was less inside and she got healthier. And so... So it, it did keep, teach me that speaking up is more important than shutting up and dying, you know? So even if it's painfully difficult to do, uh, and, and people would say to me, didn't it get worse? Or, you know, yes. I was like, yeah, it did get worse. It got, uh, you know, my life got literally threatened from the outside in because I spoke up, but it wasn't cancer killing me anymore. And then I, you know, I actually had realized, okay, I can keep moving with this. And it was huge to get the difference. Um, you know, between dying without a voice and living with a voice, even if it creates a lot of chaos. Uh, chaos. So, yeah. And it sounds like now your voice is kind of your superpower. <laughs> it, yes, it is. It is. It is. Um, not everybody, not everybody likes it, but it is my superpower. It's kind of like the for Hulk, everyone. You know, she's not for everybody. She's an acquired taste. Yeah, that's for sure. true. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a tendency to do what I call delivering delivering a unicorn bitch slap. Okay. I love <laughs> that. I love that. I love that. Okay. I'm you write know. that down. Gonna, yes. It's one of my favorite coaching techniques. Okay. <laughs> I like that. Yes. That Susan does that too. Yes. <laughs> so, all right, wait, I want to back up Susan as a kid, because I'm curious about your journey. Um, what'd you want to be when you grow up? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, I, you know, it's funny that I've not ever thought of this, but when I was, what I wanted to do most, I don't, this is going to tell my age, but my favorite movie was um, uh, the one about the little lions, Joy Born Free, you know, I don't, and I was fascinated by the animal trainers, the relationship to those little animals. Now, and my favorite toy in the world was a Tonka truck that I got that had little animals in it. And, you know, it's funny, I would have never, so now I've only in the last few years started really using horses in the work I get to do. And it's like, oh, there's a connection, you know, there, you know? and I would have, you know, cause what was safe for me in my world was animals were safe to me. People were not, I did not, that was not, um, yeah, that was not a safe, but animals, um, were. And so I've always had this desire to be able to, that's where I've found my safety and my place and horses in particular really help you open your heart. And my, I've had tons of armor for years. And I think even though I've done tons of work on it, it wasn't until I started working with the horses that I think it translated 
um, even more to people because I've softened. Like before, mm-hmm. you know, yes, I would deliver my bitch slap, unicorn <laughs> bitch slap, <laughs> but often I would do it with a really grumpy face, probably because I, I was so used to being guarded. Um, and now the horses have helped me relax that guard. So that it's interesting. I've never put it back to even my favorite toys as a kid, though. <laughs> no. Well, the other piece too that I heard is if you're interested in animal training, then that's like animal behavior, which is very similar. I was really interested in animal behavior actually like in high school and thought that's what I wanted to study. It turns out I went into coaching, which is basically studying human behavior. Human behavior. Yeah. It's true. You know, <laughs> it's true. Same, yeah. same, same, yeah. but different. It is, mm-hmm. you know, and of course I didn't trust human behavior until I figured out <laughs> you know, much later in life. <laughs> okay. So when you were delivering the unicorn bitch slap to help people cure their cancer so they could go to the Olympics. The first time you did that together, were you guys already dating? We had definitely had sparks flying. Um, so yes, it was, it was kind of at the, everything was kind of happening uh, at the same time. And, um, but we didn't know at that point, at that point we were still like, okay, we're, we want to work together. We have this opportunity. Um, and so let's, let's give this a go. But the, it was pretty clear. There was a lot more to it. So, a lot of energy. Yeah, a lot of energy. <laughs> so how did that evolve? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did that evolve? Well, you know, the interesting thing was I imagined that she, you know, that we would um, actually probably move back up to Canada because I was living up in a, sm- on a small island in Canada and really liked um, the work I got to do. It was much more personal growth and development and, and, um, and, <laughs> And she was like, no, I, um, there is no way we can make money or, or have a, a substantial career there because it's too hard to get off that little island. And um, so you need to move to Seattle and we'll start our business here. And for me, that was a big like, wow, okay. Now, so I committed to move down there and start our business, right? I moved down there and she is gone five days a week for this other job that she just thinks she has to keep, you know? And I I was like, you gotta be kidding me. You got me to move down here and you're just going to go away on Monday and come back on Friday. You know, that's like crazy, you know? Um, So, so she used it to parlay to get a dog. (laughs) So she got the dog, even though I had two cats, she was like, I want the dog. But I also said to her, look, we need to figure out our, are, are we going to do this work or not? And I did get, like, it was funny because she, her family, you know, was like, you cannot leave your big top five consulting firm job. And um, I was like, well, you said we, I think we can do this consulting. And it was interesting because everyone around us was like, you got to be crazy to start a business at this point. Because it was right after nine. So what happened is she, she moved down and she did give me the whole thing about, you know, listen, I moved down and you're gone. And I literally, I had found a job. So I, I left my big Arthur Anderson job and I started working as a project manager part-time. And I knew I started that job saying, Hey, eventually we're going to start our business. So this is just a transition job. And, um, and my, I got the dog, for the we transition. got the job. So we had, you know, <laughs> we're living in a cute little house in Madrona, Seattle, Washington. And, um, and my parents were like, oh my gosh, honey, I can't believe you left Arthur Anderson. Then 9-11 happens, Enron, Arthur Anderson, demise. And they're like, oh, honey, I'm so glad you left Arthur <laughs> Anderson. <laughs> and 
And we did build the business from there. And yeah. we actually never looked back. The we business, did. you know, uh, we had great opportunities. There've been a couple years where it's been challenging, but short of that, if we've been, you know, that was not an issue. Because what we do is we bring the human dynamics into business and teams. And usually it's people struggling to have those real conversations with each other. Yeah. And when you can help them drop their, their armor, their, you know, organizational armor, I can't be real because I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get the raise or the boss is going to get mad at me. And we can hold a container where they can actually really say what's going on. Then, well, one, the, the cancer is out because that's all that toxic stuff underneath starts to come out and processed. And then they can move on to the Olympics, as <laughs> we're saying. And it really, uh, I really like that metaphor. Um, yeah, it really works. But it's the relief of having real conversations and being human with each other. That's really the key. That is so, I mean, that, I think that is the piece that's missing in the world in general is it's, we, we long for it. We long to be seen for who we are and, and be human. But at the same time, we have so much stuff that gets in our way of actually. Well, we scare ourselves. I can't do that. They'll get upset. They'll have a reaction. I'll get in trouble. And so we squish our own energy and aliveness and our own voice. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah, it's not good. (laughs) So how, what's the, how do you get people to have human conversations? Well, in the context of a team or even a couple, it's actually starting off, we talk about smart and healthy. The smart stuff is like the Olympics, the strategy and stuff. The healthy stuff is actually rebuilding a container of trust. And often when people, trust breaks down because I take things personally, the way you do things. And really what we do is we do a styles piece. So people start to recognize, oh, it's not me that you respond this way. You're just wired differently and I'm wired differently. So they, we kind of chunk away the, how people are taking things personally. And then we also do a couple of things where they drop in and talk about themselves just more, you know, what, what's a challenge that a unique childhood challenge that you had growing up. So they get a little bit more of who's behind the eyeballs that's driving this person. And we give them a little bit on our communication model, check it out, that we talk about in, in both our books. And then, um, then we start talking about their business. And that's when the passion comes up and they bump into them themselves again. And then we go, okay, wait a minute. And we facilitate those conversations, help them listen to each other so that they really get, oh, okay. You know, they start to understand each other versus following those patterns that, you know, run into dead ends. And, you know, I... I mean, that's kind of the the outline of how we do things. And I think why, because I was always surprised how people would say, sometimes you guys working together, it, it feels different than what we've done before. And I think the only real difference is we are quite willing to show up as who we are. And so when they, and, and invite people to be messy, because so many times, now this is true in corporate, and this is true with couples. People think they're not ever supposed to show their yucky side or, we've been trained to be respectful and nice and polite and don't do anything. And it's like one of the things about getting real is that it is going to be messy. I mean, I go back to the Velveteen rabbit when he's, you know, in the story where he says, you know, you become real, but you're not going to, the furs rubbed off and and you don't look too (laughs) good, but it is real. And it's the same way with us. It's, you know, and I think because we're willing to kind of with, without, we don't fake it, but things happen and we are messy or whatever, or we're more human. And they're like, oh, you're, 
this is okay. We can do this. We disagree with each um, other about what we're supposed to do next. And, and they go, oh, they did it and they didn't die. Yeah. And, and we're carrying on. Yeah. <laughs> or we encourage, we see them do it and say, you know, that may have looked really difficult what you just said. And yes, right now it feels awkward and silent, but that's the perfect thing to say. We're going to help you move through that. Like don't, you know, cause usually somebody will say something like they'll either blurt something out that seems totally inappropriate by most politically standard rules. Mm -hmm. And we're like, good job on saying it. Now we want you to clean it up. Let's talk about that. Yeah. You know, so are you interested making, in the impact of that? <laughs> making it real in that moment. Cause I think so much of what people want is to have a trained process. That's going to take them out of that discomfort. And we're like, no, you, it, the, the potential energy is what that discomfort's about, that tension inside and between me. And we think that's a source, that conflict is a source of potential energy, but we're so uncomfortable with it. We want to get rid of it, diffuse it, change the subject. That's how I grew up, you know, just trying to get, be, avoid conflict, but all the life drains yes. out of the conversation then. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and so we, it is sort of like, we want you to realize you can get messy and you can clean it up. As long as you show up, like if you beat yourself up for saying the wrong thing, you're not going to actually be present to notice the impact you're having. Mm -hmm. So I have this motto, my, you know, my, one of my saying, it's not what you do, it's what you do next. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you're going to step on things. You're going to say stupid things, but if you don't make that wrong, you can notice and be curious um, about the impact. So that's helped me survive many with many mistakes, you know, many like, unicorn bitch laughs. Yeah, yeah, you know. Well, I I think of us as awkward puppies. Like yeah, we're, yes. humans, we're all tripping over our feet. We don't know what yes. they're doing. We do, sometimes our butt goes one way and we don't understand. <laughs> yeah. I love it. And our heads tell we're us doing. we're supposed to look good, which is just like insane, you know, like really, you know, yeah. yeah. So. Anytime any of us look good, it's just luck. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> I agree, you know? So. Stars aligned. Right. So, Chris Marie, Susan says or alluded to the fact that you weren't such a fan of conflict originally. When did that change, or how? Um, well, yeah, I grew up with an Army colonel dad that was pretty scary, so any sort of conflict was, well, it was only him. And uh, so I definitely learned to kind of scan, be a pleaser, an achiever, and... I thought that was a really good strategy. You know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about 10,000 hours to get to, I had 10,000 hours around the dinner table being a conflict avoider. And so um, when Susan and I got together and she would, we'd have differences and I'd be like, oh God, oh, I can't say this. Or I'd try to say it and fail. And I'd be like, we're over, we're over, we're over. I must've done that, I don't know, eight times in the beginning, maybe even more. <laughs> she I'm not going to say anything. She thinks more. it's more. I'm like, we can't, I can't tolerate this. And it was Susan who was like, no, I really want to hear your different opinion. And she had passion in it. And I was like, ah. So I had to wrestle with my own nervous system that was like feeling like it was life and death. That's what it felt like when conflict came up. And I believed her. First, I believed her rather than me. And I thought, okay, I'll hang in. And nine times out of 10, she was actually interested in what I had to say. And we'd come up with something that wasn't my idea or her idea, but something brand new that was even better. So it didn't feel like a compromise or an either or. And then I had to actually, I saw the benefit like, wow, this really can work. Um, and, 
And I started to value my opinion and my feelings and what I wanted, which I had never really done before. I was definitely trying to please everybody outside of me. So as I became more valuable to myself, then I started to work on my nervous system, which was automatically putting me into fight, flight, or freeze. And I did a lot of work. I'm a mind-body coach, and the reason is to interrupt that process. And it's not that it doesn't happen. It just, I feel bigger than it now, and I can make different choices, and I can cultivate that sense of safety in that moment. Or if not, I'll leave, and I'll come back, and I'll have the conversation. So I have a lot more in my toolbox, you know, and I value me more, and that's... Um, and I saw it work with teams and I see it work with couples. So it, it keeps proving the theory that when you really show up and hang in and tolerate this person having a reaction, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm in danger, doesn't mean I have to change. It, it drives that creativity and that innovation for solutions. Does people pleasing still show up in your life? Oh, completely. Like, um, I totally want this to be the best podcast ever. Um, yeah. Um, I'm an actor, so I always want to be, you know, I'm a speaker. And the difference is, even though that's there, I have more of me. Like, I care what I think. So I matter in the equation. Because when I was a people pleaser, it only mattered if, if you said I was good, then that was what was good. Now, you may say, oh, it's not so good, but I have a sense, well, I liked this part. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's less black or white. And uh, I have more resources. And I also have people outside of me that are saying, hey, I value you no matter what you do as a performer or whatever I'm trying to please somebody as. And Susan, have you ever been a people pleaser? Uh, you know, it's a funny thing. I am not generally known to be a people pleaser. However, in my most significant relationships, I I can start to give myself away. But that I think, I think what I learned with my cancer was in... Yeah, I, I, it's not going to serve me. This may feel like it's going to work, but it's not going to work over time. So um, I think underneath it, I probably have some traits of that, but they don't show up so anyone knows it other than, you know. Well, I think, did you, like you were worried in your previous relationship, you said, somebody said you niced it to death. Yeah, I did get that feedback and I thought, it's true. I, I did not show up. So that I realized, okay, this I've got to do this differently. And I have stayed committed to that. That I think that was sort of where my health issues really taught me. It's my health that's at line if I don't have these real conversations. So I'm going to keep having them. You know how some people say they changed, they got healthy because of a diet and then they stayed like a vegan or a juicer. I got healthy because I said what I had to say and spoke up. And so I think it became like my diet. Like I have to keep doing that. And so um, that I think has served me and kept me from falling into the people pleaser. If anything, people often don't know that I really care because I've been so terrified of showing that like, you know, hmm. And I think you come across and has, she has a strong opinion, but what people don't recognize is she's very willing to actually consider another, but in the presentation, it can seem so passionate that there's no way in. And that's a big misinterpretation because she's very interested in other people's like and changing and, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's interesting. Great idea. She, oh, she, she can argue on both sides of an issue and you would never know she was attached to one or the other, you know, yeah. or not attached, you know, so flexible in her position. Mm -hmm. What excites you guys about conflict? Um, well, you know, for me, I'll answer, um, it really is the fact that it's not comfortable. It's not like I'm like, yay, conflict. <laughs> I, it never gets comfortable. 
uh, it's, we didn't call it the ease of conflict. We called it the beauty of conflict. Our mm -hmm. books are called the beauty of conflict in our podcast because it's not the joy, the ease, the fun. And it's, um, what excites me about it is the possibility when I hang in and can tolerate my tension inside of me and hold for her reaction and recognize that I'm a unique human being. I feel more fulfilled when I can have my voice mm. and hang in. I feel like I matter when I speak up because I spent a lot of time thinking I didn't matter and I wasn't important and that's no fun at all. So that's my answer. And I think for me, why I'm so passionate about, you know, having the conflict is that, it, you know, I, I grew up with a story in my head that like I projected out on the world and actually kept me pretty um, held back and isolated. You know, I suffered a lot in that story. And when I, I realized that when conflict, even though it's uncomfortable when differences are presented, it offers different storylines. It gets me out of a narrative that has can trap me into believing that there's only one way to live or one way to do something. And that, so for me, and it's expansive, but I know people who travel all over the world and love traveling. And I kind of think of my, my opportunities to be engaged in conflict and hear a vast majority of people's stories as that's like traveling all over the world. It's like seeing how expansive this universe can be. And um, so that, that's why I think it, I'm passionate about it. And it definitely gets me out of the drama that kept me trapped for years. Like well, there are so many other storylines I could write that I, and opportunities. So. And I think, tell me where I'm wrong, Susan, but in your family, things were not addressed. So oh, she has yeah. this thing, like she, things can get very uncomfortable with other people. It doesn't matter. She's like, at least it's out. And I'm like, wow, you, have, <laughs> you can tolerate so much more tension than I can. But, but I think that tells I think that does come from, you know, the silence and my what wasn't being talked about in my world was really deadly to people in it. So I became very fascinated. It needs to come out, even if it's it's incredibly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So that that's part of why I, I keep it's better out than in. You know, let's keep <laughs> you, know, you know. What was it like when you first started speaking up? Well, um, you know, I one thing that happened was uh, a lot of, and I was in a community that the community in which I grew up and the stuff I was saying was really pissing people off and actually pissing off a, a person who was very charismatic community leader and no one wanted to hear anything about it. So um, I was kind of told that I was crazy, you know, I'd be better off dead I'd all sorts of, you know, lots of threats and, um, but, you know, I had also had this cancer thing going on and I noticed a distinct difference in my health. So it was like, wow, I trade off here. You know, I know I get this is really painful and difficult, but being silent is I'm going to die, you know. And I really did get I um, I was going to die not telling these stories, not speaking up. So that was a. Um, I thought, no, this, I'm going to do this. And then I moved, when it got really bad, I moved 3,000 miles away and started, because <laughs> I, I just- When in doubt, just run. Yes. <laughs> well, and I thought, well, I can work this out. I can figure out what I can do here and become my full self here. And if I need to go back and 
speak up like for years. No, nothing ever happened. I have found out in the last probably five years, less than, that, less than that, that actually people have come to me and said, oh my God, I'm so glad you spoke up. You're the only person who ever took this person on. It changed things. Um, I think it may have come because that person had died, but it, you know, it was kind of like, that's interesting, you know, but I had reached a point in my life where I just assumed, well, maybe I don't care whether anybody believes me. This is the direction I'm going. I know this is sort of me getting here. I don't want to fight about it. I just want to live my life and, and I will speak up. And so it was kind of neat though, to get some validation later in my life. Like, Oh, I wasn't, there really was that that really was as crazy as it felt. And now there's something different um, that I can live for, but I did get, okay. That, yeah, it was kind of scary to talk, but it was scarier to not talk. So, yes. And I'm wondering like, what was that like being the person who speaks, the person who speaks truth when everyone else is silent? And when that's the way of being, what was that like? Like the first time? Um, well, you know, I spent probably the better part of the year um, just pretty much no one believing me. I, I was working with a therapist who was trying to support me. Um, and I literally thought I couldn't sleep at night. There were, I mean, it was hell. It really was hell. And I remember one night actually, cause I couldn't sleep and I called my therapist. This, this was probably a life changing moment for me too, because I, um, I was like, I can't live anymore. It's like, I just want to die. I want to kill myself. And and, um, you know, I've got this cancer thing going in, all sorts of shit is happening. <laughs> There's no point. I hope it's okay if I lose explicit language on your show, oh, yes. but okay. okay. <laughs> um, okay. So I, and I remember she had said to me, I just want you to call me before, you know, if, before you decide to do anything. And so I happened to get her. And I remember I said, you know, it, I, I, I just want to die. And she said to me, she goes, you know, I understand it. And that is a choice. You could do that. I, I hope you don't. Um, but you didn't ever know you had a choice to even, whether you wanted to live in this or not live in it. So I get why you might choose to die. And I hope you'll pick up the phone and call me. But if you don't, I understand. And it was such a moment of like, oh, somebody is telling me there's that I'm not just crazy for wanting to die or, and that I actually could have a choice. You know, that was the part that was the most empowering was she held me as able to make that choice. And so that was really a turning point for me. Like, okay, I'm going to keep going forward. And I know I have a choice at some point if I can't keep doing this, but now it'll be my choice. Somebody's not going to take it away from me. And that was what was like a huge impetus to, um, keep going, you know, and find, find a way, you know, um, I needed to protect myself. So I even checked myself into a psych hospital because people were trying to hurt me. And so I was like, but, and I was in there and I, at one point, um, the person, cause I was going through treatments and all this other stuff. And that one of the people in the hospital said, you know, you really shouldn't be here. Like this is not, <laughs> you know, but I get, you don't believe you can have a voice anywhere else, but you're not crazy. So, and you know, stay here as long as you need to, but this isn't where you should be, you know? And again, it was like these moments where I kind of get, Oh, okay. Um, I just have to figure out how I can 
find where I can be to create. And that's why I moved three. After I got out of the psych hospital, I moved 3,000 miles away and said, I'm not going to call myself crazy anymore. I'm going to, you know, um, step into living and, you know, do it differently. So those people made, the people who showed you that you had a choice, they also showed you, they gave you safe spaces. They did. Like what you're doing today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think they gave me self, the art, the irony is they gave me self place, safe spaces by holding me as able, by saying, you are actually uh, able to make this choice. And that goes against a lot of training about you're never supposed, you know, if someone's, you know, someone's going to tell you they're going to kill themselves, you're supposed to hospitalize them or whatever, you know, as a therapist, I know contract, these, yeah. you know, but that moment, that place of safety, like you actually have a choice and you are able to make it. That's very empowering, you know, um, and it is a safe space. Like it, with, you know, you are not wrong. You have, you have, so I like that. That's a nice way to put it. I hadn't thought of it quite like that, but yeah. I'll find all sorts of gems for you guys. So what else? Wait, what do I want to ask you? If, if you had a billboard, what would it say? Mm. Well, one is that fulfillment is not about external, this might be a long billboard, but fulfillment <laughs> is not about external validation or approval. It's really about igniting that spark within and connecting to your insides out. That would be my billboard. I like that. I like it. We can probably shorten it. Yeah, I know. For the billboard. Get a, okay, good. So people don't what? have to get too close to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, what my mind would say, you know, mine would probably say you are, you are not broken, you know, mm -hmm. like just know that no matter where you sit in the world or what you think you are not broken, you know, um, or, and maybe cracked. I like the idea of we all have cracks and that's what lets the light in. Yeah, so yeah. don't worry about being going. cracked. Cracked is okay. <laughs> broken cracked. is something different and not, and we're not broken. cracked is beautiful. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. All right. Yeah. What's the scariest thing you've ever done? And I'm going to give you guys a choice. You can answer individually or as a couple. Oh, wow. Well, can I, yeah, go I have an answer for us as a couple. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think when we did our TED, TEDx talk was one of the first time where we, well, one, it was one of the first times that I ever talked a bit about my life history story uh, publicly. And we also talked about ourselves as a couple, which we had not done. And, you know, a TED talk is one of those things that you're doing it, but you don't really even realize it kind of goes everywhere. So that was, a, um, that was, I think, a pretty um, big moment for both of us. Like we are now committed to this, who we are being out there and sharing our story in a much broader perspective. So. I would, I was going to, I had that, the TEDx uh, talk came into my mind um, because that we were practicing and we were saying, trying no. to intro ourselves and, and the woman was like, wait, 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 what are you life partners or not? And I said, well, yeah. And she goes, well, then just say that. Now, here, <laughs> but we're in Montana. It's 2015. And, you know, remember Ellen only came out in 2000, no, 1997. And she was blackballed for three years. So and in Montana, we're not in Seattle where I would have felt more comfortable. Mm. And now 
I, we just legally, we got married in 2006 at a ceremony with our dads walking us down the aisle. People were there. We had white dresses. It was really nice. <laughs> but it wasn't legal. It was right before, right after Washington State said no to same-sex marriage. And we just got married on the same, our wedding anniversary this July. So now I can actually say she's my wife. <laughs> and even being willing to say that and own it, it's like owning the Olympics. It's, mm. it's something like when we first started working together, I'd be like, you cannot tell them that we're together. Like you have to pretend you have the dog and I'll have the cats. And I did <laughs> all this orchestration to try to hide the fact that we were, oh no, they're going to pay for two hotel rooms. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so that whole process has been a, a big step. Mm -hmm. That is probably not an issue for younger people at all, but you know. Oh, and I would say, you know, the TED Talk was actually the thing that initiated two people from my childhood reaching out to me totally from different parts of the world saying, I know who you're talking about. I know what happened. I'm so grateful you had a voice. So the, I, I hadn't, again, this is not something I'd really put together. Thanks for this coaching like, session. You know, yeah, you're, <laughs> you're, you know, you're great at that. <laughs> you know, I have this quote in my office by me. That sounds weird. But um, it says, be big, be bold, be bright and shiny and sparkly. Stand up and stand out. You never know who you're going to inspire. Yes, I love it, that. And it sounds like you guys inspired yourselves and people from your childhood, Susan, and a whole bunch of strangers through your TED Talk. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's a neat way of That's thinking good. about it. I like that. And I love I being know. sparkly. <laughs> grab sparkly. that sparkle word. <laughs> what have we not talked about that you guys want to talk about? Well, we are excited about this couple's book because in the it's another way that we're we talk about our relationship. We talk about our dynamics. Um, we tell stories about ourselves. And it really is the same idea of Susan's billboard, like you're not broken. So often couples think, oh gosh, we're broken because we don't socially, we just say, oh, everything's fine. You know, yeah. couples break up and they look like they were the perfect couple. And, and it, it's so normalizing to know that, hey, all couples struggle with, you know, how you how you deal with chore division or not enough sex or how you deal with money or yeah. the kids or the in-laws, all that sort of stuff. And, um, and that there isn't one right way to do a relationship, you know, that, that intimacy and, and relationship choices come by sharing and being real with each other and deciding what you want to create, not what the world says you're supposed to look like. And that's, um, that's really, mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're pretty passionate about helping that, because I think that's the best resource we have to change the world, the, the direction the planet is going, if we could really get that. Mm -hmm. It's still a little dicey whether we will, but <laughs> it's, you know. <laughs> and this, I mean, this book, it took us three years to write our business book, which has turned out great. It took us like uh, six, six weeks or six months, six months from beginning to end to edit all that, to put it together, because it was such, it just kind of fell out of us. It was so much easier. And it was having the courage again to put a couple's book as two women and go out all over TV and beyond that here we are two women's helping you in your relationship as a heteros mostly heterosexual couples out there, which we do couples workshops and the, the guys at the beginning, most of the couples are guys, you know, are same uh, heterosexuals and the guys will be like, well, what are two women going to tell me? Aren't men from me, um, Mars and women from Venus? It, they might be, but that has nothing to do with yeah. intimacy or the challenges <laughs> you're going to have in a relationship. You're two human beings trying yeah. to relate. Yeah. So. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I love that. All right. Will you tell us then, please, where people can find you, the name of your book, where we can get it, where we can learn more about you, work with you, anything else, all the things. Excellent. (laughs) I will. It's real easy to remember because most of our things are called the beauty of conflict. So we have a podcast, The Beauty of Conflict. Our first book is The Beauty of Conflict, and it's about business teams. And then our Beauty of Conflict for Couples, both of those are available on Amazon, IndieBound, Indiebound, Barnes & Noble. And uh, our website, where you can just learn more about us, is Thrive Inc., T-H-R-I-V-E-I-N-C.com. And the book, we have a book website, beautyofconflict.com, where you can learn more about the book. And just connect to us even on Facebook by our personal names or our business thriving and Instagram is thriving. And yeah, I think that's everything. And we're doing a horse workshop. Oh, well, right. couples in the yes. a program called Couples Mojo in October at Apache Springs. And we do that periodically. Sometimes we do it down in Arizona at Apache Springs Resort. And sometimes we do it up in Montana. And that is one, um, one of our favorites. And we also do a Couples Alive program up in Canada. So there are a couple different ways you could work directly with us in person. And then the, the virtual, because sometimes people don't want, they're, they're interested, but their partner isn't. So we developed a relationship mojo, a virtual course, eight weeks, where we take you through you. We talk about the me and the we. So it's really about you igniting your me, which will transform the relationship. And that starts October 23rd. So that you can find out on both of those are available. And on if not that date further out, because we don't know exactly when this is. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> if, if this airs after that, then it's, it's next Just year. On the <laughs> There'll be another one. There'll exactly. be another one. Those and are both our of passions. Those, both of those are available at thriveinc.com. Yes. Awesome. You guys are so fun. Thank you so much for this. Oh, this was great. <laughs> I really do appreciate the coaching session. <laughs> I really like <laughs> just... Yes, You're good I, I'm going to use that unicorn bitch slap, but I'm going to give you credit for it. I'm going to say, <laughs> Thank I you. had this coaching session on a podcast. <laughs> you know? And I'm going to say we cure cancer and get them to the Olympics. Well, that That's might have been so you, good. but it came yeah. out in this. So I yeah. love it. That was good. Thank you, guys. Thank yeah, you, thank Kelsey. You. We'd like to continue the conversation please head over to Facebook and join the group Find Your Awesome with Kelsey Abbott. It's free. And if you want more than that, go to my website, kelseyabbott.com. And there you can sign up for my newsletter and get a series of free guided meditations. And I would really appreciate it if you could head over to the podcast app and leave a review of the Find Your Awesome podcast. Your reviews help other people learn about this podcast. Thank you so much. That's all I've got for you, friends. Go forth and be awesome.